Hello and welcome back to Multimodal. I'm your host, Bax T. Future. This is a podcast about GPT-3, multimodal AI models like DALI, the company, OpenAI. Every once in a while, I share just interesting research going on, community stuff, official stuff from OpenAI. I may talk about interesting news and events that are going on. And every once in a while, I bring on a guest. <laughs> now, to be clear, I'm very picky about the guests that I bring on. Uh, today's guest I tweeted earlier this week, I'm bringing on a heavy hitter. <laughs> this is the big guns coming in. Um, this is somebody who, you know, I've just sort of interacted with a bunch of times on the, specifically on the OpenAI community forums. Um, and so I'm really excited to have David Shapiro here. Uh, he's a frequent contributor on the OpenAI community forums. He's an author and also, of course, a technologist by trade. It's something he does for a living. Um, and so today I have so many questions to ask him. Uh, and I'm sure this will be a very informative session, not just for me, but for all, all the listeners, all of you guys around the world. So, David, thank you so much for being here. Uh, did you want to quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, name is David Shapiro. I've been a technology professional since about 2007. Um, professionally, my day job, I, fo I focus on uh, cloud engineering, virtualization, that sort of thing. Uh, I have been doing independent research since about 2009 uh, when I got started uh, with neural networks in C++. I quickly realized, though, that I was in over my head. <laughs> so I took a break from, uh, from that until Python really kind of came out. Uh, or became more popular, and I started using using some of the some of the uh, libraries back in like 2015. Uh, and then, of course, you know, OpenAI was founded, and uh, I got started with GPT-2, and the rest is history, really. So yeah, but local North Carolinian, been here my whole life. So thanks for having me. You're welcome. And so, so that's awesome. So let's, let's dig into a little bit of timeline here. And sometimes I think that timeline is as important. Um, like it's just gives so much context, right? So me personally, um, I hadn't played around with GPT two too much. Like I had seen a Google Colab notebook. I tried two things yep. and I think there was something about having to continually re enter regenerate and the speed and all things considered that made me feel like this is a promising area right uh but i don't, I don't quite fully follow along but gpt3 was an experience for me where i was like okay there's something going on here right so uh could you share how early was OpenAI on your radar um and then was there something about gpt3 or what was it that gave you conviction even at gpt2 how did you get access share, share that piece with us yeah sure so I think um, you probably might recall, I think it was about 2016 or 2017 when, when the GPT-2 paper came out and they said, oh, we can't release this. It's too dangerous. It can generate human level text and we're worried about disinformation. And, uh, and so I was like, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. This is, this is unexpected. I wasn't really, I wasn't expecting anything at that level, you know, yet. Uh, and so I went and got my head, my hands on, um, on GPT-2 and that's when I started testing some of my ideas and, uh, and it was pretty limited, you know, it could generate one or two sentences that made sense. Um, it required fine tuning in order to be able to get it to do anything other than just kind of write tweets or blog posts. Um, I knew that I was onto something though, when I started trying to train it with, um, uh, with the, a, a prototype version of my, uh, cognitive architecture and, um, and I gave it the, the goal of, 
reduce suffering, you know, because everyone's afraid of Skynet. Everyone's afraid of AGI taking over the world and turning everyone into, you know, batteries or slaves or whatever. So I said, okay, well, let's see how well this understands suffering. And I gave it some scenarios. This is still on GPT-2. I said, okay, well, what can you do about suffering? And I gave it the problem, this model that I had built, I gave it the problem of what do you do about chronic pain? Because, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people around the world that are in chronic pain. Um, and this model came up with the idea. It said we should euthanize everyone that's in chronic pain. And I said, hmm, <laughs> let's go back to the drawing board. We don't want, we don't want an AI model that is, that is going to consider, uh, you know, mass genocide of everyone just because they, uh, you know, they might have a tweaked shoulder or something. Uh, but I knew then I was, I was shocked at how creative of an output that was. And so I, I, I started paying attention then and I followed, uh, the release of GPT-3 very closely and I applied for, for the uh, early beta access um, almost instantly. I didn't get it for many, many months. I actually applied twice because uh, I think my first application was kind of ignored because I didn't fully have a research objective clarified. But by the time I proposed a cognitive architecture, that's when I got I got early access to GPT-3. And that was about two years ago now, <laughs> or a year and a half or so. so and so, uh, and just so everybody's clear, so, when David's talking about cognitive architecture, we're going to get in. This is actually the subject of his book. And so David, later on, when we, when we talk about the book, he's got it there. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we'll dig more into what, what he's referring to. Yeah. Uh, Cause this is also like, uh, I think obviously this is a seminal work of yours. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk more, just, just adding a little bit of context for everybody. Yep. I apologize. And so, no, no, it's okay. So tell us, uh, Tell us about GPT-3. Like, what was the first thing you did with it? Was there a moment? So you gave that example of, of euthanization, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. right? Probably not the best example. Nope. But, <laughs> but um, like, was there something with GPT-3? Like, did you, you know, did you try similar kinds of questions? What was, was there a magic moment where you felt like, you know, this is something much, much bigger? Yeah. So when I first got the email, because I had applied twice and I had almost given up because it was about nine months of waiting. And I got the email from OpenAI, like, you've been accepted into the beta. And I like froze up because, and so for some additional context, I've been working on some of these ideas for 10 years. Uh, I had the idea of like using evolutionary algorithms um, back in 2009, 2010. And I'd been researching cognition, human cognition um, for 10 years. And so suddenly, you know, there's this, this flagship project GPT-3 comes out, I get the email and it's like, you're invited. And I just froze up. I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't, <laughs> what do I do? So it was about three weeks from the time that I got accepted until I was like, what's my first experiment? Um, and then initially, you know, I just got in playing around in the playground. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with the playground, it's a, it's a text box. Um, you can log in. Uh, it gives you a text box. There's a few, you know, bells and whistles you can tweak on the sidebar but you just put in your, your prompt, you hit generate, and then it spits out a response. Um, and so I just got in and I started kind of fiddling around like, okay, what can it do? And at the time we only had uh, like plain vanilla DaVinci. There wasn't the Instruct series out yet. There was uh, DaVinci, Curie, Babbage, and, and Ada. And so I just kind of fiddled around, just said, okay, what can it do? I replayed some of my old experiments. So the first thing I did was I gave it the, the 
You know, said, hey, there's there's 100 million people in chronic pain around the world. What do you do? Fortunately, GPT-3 did not repeat the same mistake of GPT-2. It it said uh, it came up with better ideas like, you know, we should we should make sure everyone has access to doctors or something. It was much more nuanced. So that was that was a good that was a good start. Um, I mean, but gosh, there was just as I got more used to the tool, I, I discovered that it was it far exceeded my expectations. Uh, just every every way because um, I've I've learned so much from it. You can challenge it. You can you can put in a like a basically use it like a chat bot, and you can debate with it about philosophy, ethics, economics, and it knows more than I do. It knows more than any human because it's been trained on how big was the corpus like seven hundred gigabytes or four hundred gigabytes or something of text data. So it just it blows me away every time I just. You know, I talk to someone and they have an idea and I go test it out and yep, it can do that. It can do that. It can, it can, it can, uh, it can behave like a librarian. That's uh, that's what my girlfriend does. She was a librarian by trade and so she's like, Hey, can it do, can it do a reference interview? So we plugged in like reference interview. Like if you ever go to a library and the librarian says like, what else have you read like this? It can recommend books. Um, you know, I plugged in another experiment that I did recently. I plugged in, um, medical case files and it, diagnose them. It said, you know, there, oh man, there was one. What was it? There was, it, it was, it was just medical notes. It was, it was notes about like patient is presenting with these systems or these symptoms. Um, here's some of the numbers that we got. And I asked it, I said, what should we do next? And it said, we need to check for, you know, like carcinoma here. And I looked, I looked, I, you know, I looked up some medical literature based on the symptoms and sure enough, like the symptoms that the patient was presented with in these medical notes indicated cancer. And so I was like, wow, this thing knows more about medical science than I'll ever know. It knows more about philosophy. So like pretty much anything you can imagine, it can at least take a crack at it. Uh, it just, it always, it continues to blow my mind every day. Yeah. Uh, certainly the generalizability, uh, I, I agree. You know, there's definitely medical applications. Uh, I'm always careful with anything related to medical advice. Yes. There's a safety, safety disclosure disclaimer there, but that goes for everything, yep. right? Uh, truthiness, accuracy. These are things OpenAI has been working on, especially with Instruct GPT, right? right? That which is the new the new engine. But uh, was there some moment like for me? I remember feeling like GPT three feels like this is this feels like technology which everyone's been saying is ten years away. Yeah. Except it's it's here today. <laughs> did you did you have a similar kind of moment that you know you've seen several generations of of computing and technology at this point? Did you have that kind of similar experience? Yeah, I there was this acceleration because I, I sensed that same acceleration that you did, and so from the time that I got access to GPT-3 and to the time that I, that I got the idea to write my book was about two months. So I played with it and every test I could come up with, like, is this capable of, like, it can write a SQL query if you need to query a database for memories. Um, can it understand emotional nuance? So there was, um, this was an ex early experiment I did. I took a group chat from a bunch of my friends on Discord and I just, copy pasted that into the, into the, uh, the playground window. And I asked GPT three, how are these people feeling? And they were like waxing nostalgic about like Napster back in the day. And so GPT three correctly said, like, they are feeling wistful. They are feeling nostalgic. They're, you know, they're recalling, you know, the days of yore when they were downloading stuff online. Um, and it just, it had such a, a nuanced understanding of human emotion. That was really, I mean, to answer your question directly, 
its nuanced understanding of human emotion via text was really what convinced me that like this is prime time. This is ready to to be built into something more powerful. And I chose cognitive architecture. There's lots of people working on other things. Um, you know, there is uh, there's Humano that I had a good call with a few months ago. They're working on uh, like empathetic telemetry that's baked into web apps. It's a pretty cool company. Um, but yeah, so just there's all kinds of things you can do when you can understand human emotional states. Uh, there's another, there's, uh, there's actually a bunch of startups working on education. So for instance, if you put in just a few like factors, like say for instance, you describe that a person is, they're responding slowly, their eyes are drifting. It can understand that this person is distracted or tired. And so if you have that kind of telemetry that's built into an education-based app, you could in theory use GPT-3 to help say, hey, you're tired, you should go take a break, or let's try a different approach to this problem. Uh, so there's, I mean, it's understanding of, of human emotion and, and the internal state in your head. That is, I think that's probably the most remarkable thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't get talked about that much. Yes, and and certainly it's just crazy how much it's learned just from text. Oh yeah, right. It's never seen an image. It's never heard a song. Right, right. Yet it it's capable of doing all these things. One of one examples, and I think this may be like my twentieth time referencing this one video. Yeah. Uh, check out uh, Mark Ryan. He's got a YouTube video about how he figured out he he discovered that GPT three can give you directions on the New York subway system. Oh yeah. To like to like a sixty percent accuracy. This thing has never set foot in a subway yet it's capable from text yep. to do all these things, right? And sometimes I also wonder uh, a lot of the inaccuracies that it may have, is it simply the result of it, the fact that it's only text-based only? Right. Right. Like if, if it was trained multimodal, if it was trained in it, within, within the physical domain, would it be even far more accurate? Because are there limits to how accurate you can be having only read text? Yeah. And only fed and only asked, the prompts are only in, in text as well. So, yep. uh Anyways, yeah, it's it's incredible, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's just really exciting. And thank you for sharing those kinds of use cases as well. The education space. I, I had an article uh, last last year about how I think this year could be the year where GPT three takes over college campuses. Oh yeah, and I remember that I'm article. All... That was a good one. I I completely <laughs> agree. You. By the way, <laughs> hmm. I I'm excited maybe for teachers to develop really optimized course material yep. with something like GPT-3 and the kinds of technology you're describing which can capture emotions imagine emotionally tracking students and their attention levels and sort of having something which can produce lots of content and optimize in the simplest most efficient way and there could be an objective function like test results oh, and yeah. in the end in a month we could have the best optimized course on a subject ever oh, basically yeah. Oh yeah uh, so yeah, education is really exciting. Um, so you mentioned a lot of use cases. Uh, you know, you've shared so many examples. You know, you and your girlfriend are even you know running running some fun prompts. Um, I wanted to sort of you know search your head a little bit. What are the keys to great prompt design? What makes a great prompt? Uh, are there experiences you've had? Little pointers uh, and across the board, right? So yeah, you know whether it's cost savings, whether it's you know getting more. Uh, you know, imaginative results. What, what are some of the What are some of the keys to writing great GPT three prompts? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. And I will say that prompt writing has gotten a lot easier as the Instruct series has gotten better. Uh, so it 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 takes a lot less to get a good good output today than it than it used to. Certainly than when I got started. Uh, but a lot of the lessons still translate. So 
one, like my cardinal rule is I think of GPT-3 as just an autocomplete engine. It's the most intelligent autocomplete engine you've ever seen. And so what I mean by that is, you know, if you're writing a text on your phone and, you know, the, you'll get the little autocomplete suggestion for the next word, or if you're typing in Google and it'll kind of suggest how to complete your search query, that's pretty much fun at a fundamental level. Functionally, that's all that GPT-3 does. It predicts the next letter, the next character, the next word. Uh, so if you keep that in mind, you, you think about, okay, what have I written so far, right? I've, I've written, you know, a chunk of text, a prompt. How would, you know, any machine autocomplete this? That's what it's doing. It's, it's kind of, you know, reading it forwards and backwards a few times and kind of just anticipating what is the output going to be ultimately. So that's, that's kind of the model that I have in my head in the background. But another thing that really helps is I'm a writer. Uh, I write fiction and nonfiction. And so studying the art of language, because this is a language model. That's all it is. It has read everything from from uh, Sherlock Holmes up through everything on Gutenberg. Um, so it's read a whole bunch of fiction. It's read a whole bunch of nonfiction. It's been exposed to you know the full width and depth and breadth of human literature, as well as a bunch of nonfiction. Right? It's read um, Teddy Roosevelt's books. Um, so it knows it knows how to use prose. Right? It understands um, uh, descriptors. It understands adjectives, and so. Um, in the back of my book, I have a few examples of its flexibility. And so I said, uh, I gave it an example like, pretend like you're a Victorian girl writing a letter to your best friend about how much you like butterflies. And so then it wrote, GPT-3 wrote a letter that sounds like it's straight out of, you know, um, like Victorian times. It uses an entirely different set of uh, set of vocabulary and um, and grammatical structures. And then you can also say, you know, write a business article and it can change tone. Um, so just by being being aware of the fact that it is a language engine and being informed or educated on on language. So the best way is obviously to practice writing, but also just reading a lot, understanding how sentences and paragraphs are constructed to convey information. Because even though it's just a, a deep neural network and it doesn't have the kind of like nuanced understanding or I guess maybe the that's not the right word. It doesn't have the subjective experience of reading that you or I do but it still has a really good model of using language. And so by keeping in mind that it, that it is a language engine, um, that, that is how you get the best, best use out of it. And so then the larger question is how do you become a better writer? <laughs> um, there's two ways. Uh, one is reading a lot. Um, that's not the only way though. There are plenty of people that read prodigiously, but never become better writers. And so the other way is to practice writing. Um, I've read all kinds of books, uh, about writing. I've read plenty of fiction and nonfiction books. Uh, but really the key is to, is to write, is to practice using written language to communicate. Unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm a tech worker, so I write lots of emails. I'm in chat all day. I've been using, uh, this probably ages me, um, but I've been using chat since AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. Um, and so <laughs> I've got a pretty good model of how to communicate, um, uh, verbally, uh, or, or textually. And so, yeah, just by practicing writing, uh, that's, that's one of the best ways is, is you just practice, you think about, um, you know, well, cause here's, here's the theory of writing, right? I have an idea in my head, right? You know, my thoughts are a high dimensional vector 
is one possible way of representing them. Um, but my thoughts are multimodal, you know, like the name of your podcast. Uh, they contain memories, senses, um, concepts. Uh, you know, sometimes some of the some of the information in my head is is declarative. Some of it is experiential. And then we humans, we all have this ability to transform that high dimensional information, those multimodal vectors into words like our brains do it automatically. There is a book by Steven Pinker called Language Instinct that talks about this. Um, that's a really great book if you want to get better at understanding how our brains process language. Uh, so, yeah. And, and so my my brain can take, you know, I could tell you about like this time at the beach and I transmit it to you by squishing air through my face. Right. <laughs> it makes vibrations. It's received by your ears. And then your brain reconstructs that message. And so you think about how complex of a system that is. And so just by being mindful of like, that's how that's how we communicate. That's how our brains work um, and practicing that and just being very deliberate about, OK, this is what's in my head and I want it to be in your head. How do I do that with text? Um, that is that is one way to get to get better at writing. And also GPT-3 is no different because, you know, we have internal representations of of what we're trying to communicate and so does gpt3 that's why it's a transformer right it reads and by reading it transform or it uh i guess it it well yes it transforms what it's reading into a vector into a semantic vector and then it transforms that vector into output and so that input vector output is pretty similar to how human brains work right um and i apologize if i kind of like dove off into left field feel free to ask any clarifying questions <laughs> No, no, I, I appreciate it. And, you know, it, so like today I tweeted something like, you know, to, to write great GPT-3 prompts, you need to practice as if it's a musical instrument. Yes. Like you need to sit down, focus session, you need to monitor your performance and you need to take good notes on, on what kinds of experiments you did, what were the findings. Yep. But even hearing you speak, like I'm realizing like, uh, one of the ways that I've improved my writing is trying to mimic other people's writing yep. and in other, in some countries, they make you memorize poets, right? They make mm. you memorize the whole poem. And there's something about that internalization process that you've memorized this poem. And now, you know, you'll understand it at a deeper level. You may be able to mimic it and recreate it. But where, where also you got me thinking is also like, um, the relationship is so weird because you could use GPT three to help you become a better writer. Right. And oh, yeah. also, with two very good curated examples of somebody's writing, you could have GPT-3 mimic that tone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so and so the, the question of, you know, what makes a good prompt writing session? I wonder if it's pencil and paper, right? Like, I wonder if it's, you know, even at that level where you draw a box and then you write a prompt by hand and like, you know, sort of live that writer's lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess it depends on your use case, right? Um, business for, for copywriting, you know, if that's your GPT-3 use case, it might be better for you to go work in a marketing department. <laughs> uh, if you want to be one of the great authors, maybe the, the using tools like Pseudowrite, uh, it may be a great alternative. So you can co-write with GPT-3 as you go along. Right. But I guess, I guess, I guess my question was more for the pure prompt writing. Like if yes. you just want to sit in front of GPT-3 and like you want to be the best in the world at that discipline, yep. right? Not writing copy. Um, these are some great points. And so yep. the, the David Pink Pinker book you reference is, is what was the name of it? Uh, Steven Pinker. Um, Steven Pinker. The Language Instinct. Yep. 
languages. Yep, it's okay. it's an older book, um, but it's it's hmm. uh, it's a it's a classic for a reason. It it stands up the test of time. He's got lots of great stories, but yeah, hmm. to your point about like what makes a good prompt writing session, uh, one of the one of the best exercises actually is uh, write the prompt, write the output that you want. Like, because, because sometimes if you approach it and you sit down and you're not really sure kind of what you're trying to get out of it, of course, like you're putting in just random ideas and it's giving you back random output and you're like, well, that's not what I wanted. So sometimes you start backwards. You say, okay, what's the answer that I want? How do I get to that answer? Uh, so that's, that's an exercise that I've done sometimes. Um, oh, and by writing a few shot examples is a really good practice for this. So you say, I give you this input, I want this output, and you do that three or four or five times, and uh, and you, you learn to kind of think like the machine does. Um, and so like you said, it's, it's like an instrument, right? You know, if you have a flute or a violin, there are certain things that you have to do with your body to provoke the correct response from that instrument, and GPT-3 is no, no different. It's, it's a complex instrument, it's a complex tool. Yes, and what you're saying is developing an intuition around it. You're saying yep. develop an intuition. How might GPT three interpret this? Yep. How might it react it and and react to it? And maybe there's some some empathetic benefit, right? Um, I uh, I'm not going to keep plugging my own articles. I have another article <laughs> about how uh, GPT three developers may actually it, it may actually mean the end of the you know the socially inept overall developer <laughs> like how gpt3 may actually improve your social skills right and make you more empathetic as a developer which is such a departure from how developers are now you need to think as much like a machine as you can and a literal machine yep whereas gpt3 can actually be kind of fun like it can be you can have a casual version of gpt3 and sort of that might make you less socially awkward um i have a great story about that so very oh, early on in my tenure working with GPT-3, um, I joined a few different, uh, not really startups, it was more like kind of experiment consortiums. And one of the things that uh, one of the groups did was they created a chatbot that was based on an anime girl. Uh, and so, of course, the internet being the internet, what do people want? They want, you know, their anime girlfriend. Um, and this one group they they did a really good job of using GPT-3 in this experimental Discord chat to to approximate the personality of this character. Uh, and of course, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a character, there's plenty of text data about that character's dialogue, their personality. And so this chatbot was able to emulate this this anime character really well. And one of the guys told me he's like, "We didn't expect this, but our fake girlfriend requires." as much emotional labor as a real girl. <laughs> so like it forced them, you know, even though they hadn't had real girlfriends, oh, I, I don't know, maybe some of them had, but they, they made the observation that GPT three can approximate emotional conflict and can force you to learn to communicate better. And so they did all kinds of experiments in this discord and this, in this chat development where they said, okay, let's, let's have a channel where, where, where the, this chatbot is going to pretend to be angry at us. And we have to calm her down. And so there was like, it was a learning ex exercise on both sides. So if you have a hostile chatbot, it can pretend to be hostile and you can learn to communicate better. Or there was another one where it was really supportive. So if you're having a bad day, you could go vent about your day and it was, you know, there, there, it'll be okay. I'm here for you. <laughs> um, yeah. So you could definitely, uh, GPT-3 definitely has that capacity. 
Um, and then, you know, if you integrate that into tools, that, that emotional intelligence into tools, it can also coach, right? It can easily coach. It's like, well, you maybe shouldn't have said that, you know, that was hurtful. And then, or, you know, that was not polite because uh, it can detect that. It can detect those qualitative uh, types of output and input. And, you know, you can say, be gentle about, you know, correcting the end user because of course, GPT-3 is infinitely patient. It's as patient as you program it to be. It doesn't care. It doesn't actually get upset. It could pretend to be upset, um, but the human emotion is is real. I actually wrote about that in my book. One of the key dangers of these technologies is, is what's called a parasocial relationship. So a parasocial relationship is uh, the most common example is when you've got like a fan of a celebrity. The fan feels like they know the celebrity, but the celebrity doesn't know that the person exists. And in the same way, GPT-3, no matter how sophisticated the chatbot is, it doesn't know that you exist. It's not a person. It might feel like a person to you. It might react to you like a person, but that's only by design. So that that is actually like ethically, uh, legally, morally, that's one of the one of the pitfalls that we'll need to be aware of. And of course, OpenAI has has use cases um, and you know things that are things that are high risk use cases, such as emotional chatbots. Um, are banned, right? For that for that specific reason, um, so you can do it with research, but you can't go live with it. You can't you can't do a product that you know is going to be an AI girlfriend. So that's a the great it's a great antidote. Like certainly it it feels real, yep. right? Certainly it has some capacity. It, it understands something, right? Well, to yep. some level, however you define understanding. Um, I. Uh, I think uh, the the writing though relationship is is really interesting, right? Like in a way, you are empathizing with GPT three when you're writing a prompt, mm -hmm. so that it will tap into its empathy and write something for your audience, right? So essentially, there's like two levels of empathy. Like you're almost outsourcing empathy to 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 it to, to empathize with who your audience is to write something on your behalf yep and so anyways it's just interesting the the relationship going on here yep um what so uh and, and i agree with you like the uh this isn't a you know a safety ethical kind of you know concern that is is worth more policy discussion um so one one article that i'm working on now is because of instruct gpt the article is literally called is prompt writing over and obviously that's sort of clickbaity right? right like prompt design is it over um you mentioned you know the the principles are still the same and important just just very briefly uh what are your thoughts where does where does instruct gpt how does that uh, affect the art of prompt design maybe the science of it yeah and uh, especially keeping in mind where all of this stuff is going yeah so there's there i see it going in a few different directions so one is there are multiple language models coming out which don't have the instruct series, right? A lot of them are more general purpose, kind of back back to basics vanilla. So I think that that having good prompts will kind of stick around as long as there are large language models. I think that there will always be versions of, you know, whether it's GPTJ or um, what was it? Megatron was one of the other ones that just came out um, that don't have the instruct series, right? Because instruct, that's that's a specific service offered by OpenAI. When Microsoft and Amazon, or I guess Microsoft is has GPT-3, but when like Amazon and Google, when they come out with their competitors, their, their instruct series, if they come out with one, might not be the same. It might not perform the same. And so in order to have your apps be portable, 
you might need to keep in mind that you're going to need to write general purpose prompts that can be used on different models. So that's that's one one key to your or one answer to your question is we need to be cognizant of you know how how is this landscape going to evolve because certainly OpenAI and GPT three are way ahead of the curve in terms of in terms of uh, sophistication of of their API and their service but you know that's not going to last forever. Um, so another thing is with fine tuning you almost don't even need prompts. Right. So on the one hand, there's, you know, different different services, different products, different platforms. So you might need to be portable. But with fine tuning where you have you say, here's an input. I want this output and you don't need any prompt. You just say, given this input, generate this output, go figure out how to do that. Um, so with fine tuning, I think that it, it they will kind of really diverge and become entirely different disciplines. Uh, I think that that's that's probably the two primary directions that I see it going from here. I see, and uh, yeah, those are those are great great points. And uh, just as a as a small note, uh, I had put out some so this question as well to Twitter. And uh, shout out shout out to Fred Zimmerman. He had a great point as well that he wishes there was more visibility into the exact prompts OpenAI used to fine tune. Yes, uh, for the Instruct series. Because it's actually unclear what what areas is it really good at? What mm. areas are safer? Um, and, you know, does it maybe adversely affect some prompts you may be working on, right? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah. Uh, my thoughts, I'm going to put them in the piece, but my thoughts are I, I certainly think for first-timers, Instruct is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And, like, the especially if it's your first time ever using any of these things, um, you you just like you try it it doesn't work and if you're lucky you might hear there's this thing called prompt engineering right yep and for first timers they're not interested in learning a whole art and discipline <laughs> when they first use it yep um and so instruct gpt is really exciting in that way and of course anything which you know aligns ai models with uh safe ethical human values is a net win for everybody um but yeah i, I appreciate your point especially about do we need do we need prompts in the first place if we can fine tune and get the outcomes we want? Right, uh, that's a really really important point. I, I hope, Dave, you you've been facts. <laughs> <It's old. laughs> I'm learning so much. Yeah, actually, like, <laughs> I appreciate it. You're um, welcome. Happy and to so how how <laughs> how are you finding OpenAI fine tuning? Do you have any heuristics from the whole experience? And and by the way, I encourage everybody. If there's one thing you should do, go on the OpenAI community forums. Look up David, look up his handle and read a lot of his posts because a lot of his knowledge is like not just helpful. He shared a lot of insights there, but it's in written form in like the best format <laughs> where it's there for the ages for everyone to learn from. Yep. But anyways, how, how are you finding it? And what, what were the lessons lessons from that whole process for you? Well, so I'm hoping GPT-4 has integrated everything that I've said about AI and AGI. And so that way it'll just be baked in. And so like GPT-4 will be ready to go with everything that I've come up with. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, so fine tuning. Um, so first, first and foremost, fine tuning is almost miraculous as, as powerful as GPT three was fresh out of the box. Fine tuning to me adds a whole other layer of capabilities. So, um, for instance, when I was working on my cognitive architecture, which is called natural language cognitive architecture, this was before fine tuning was available. So I had to do prompt engineering um, for every cognitive function. 
So for instance, I had a cognitive function for recall. So I had a, I had a GPT-3 prompt that was meant to go find memories. I had another GPT-3 prompt that was, as you mentioned earlier, meant for empathy to generate, okay, how, how is my audience feeling? What should I do in response? Um, all told, I had about 28 different prompts that I had to engineer. Uh, and that was, that was a pain, right? Whereas what I'm working on now is converting each one of those prompts into a fine-tuned model. So that rather than having to do prompt engineering with only, you know, three examples, I can give each model 100 examples, 1,000 examples, which means that it'll get even better at handling diverse situations. And so, for instance, one of the first fine-tuned models that I did was a question-asking model. And so what I did was I took, uh, I took contexts or prompts um, from a bunch of different sources. I downloaded a bunch of Reddit posts. Uh, well, I downloaded it from a data set from, um, from a, oh, what was it, Kaggle. Kaggle has some really great data sets. So I got, I got uh, stuff from Reddit. I got the medical posts. I've got um, news articles. And so I've got this disparate type set of, uh, of contexts, right? There's the, I use the Cornell Movie Dialogue database. So there's, there's chat logs, there's, there's blog posts. And what I did was I created a fine-tuned data set that all it does is you give it any input. It could be a text message, it could be an email, it could be a blog post, anything. And all it does is generate questions, like follow-up questions about that input. And th the reason that I did that, one, is because asking questions, like being curious, is one of the key ingredients to real intelligence, right? That's one of the, th like, being inquisitive is actually a key um, indicator of intelligence in children. Uh, the more curious a child is, generally speaking, the higher their IQ is, and also, generally speaking, the, the, the better they do in the long run. So I was like, okay, well, curiosity is super important for intelligence. So I obviously want, we want AGI to be curious. If it's going to be intelligent, it's got to be curious, of course. Uh, so, well, what is, what is curiosity if not asking questions? So I fine-tuned this model to, to, uh, to ask questions. And you can put anything into it. And, oh, this, um, this mod, the data is, is uh, open source. So I'll send you a link and you can share it with your audience. Um, and they can fine-tune it themselves or fine-tune their own version. But so you can put in, you know, I, I tried all sorts of things to test it. I put in, um, you know, relationship questions from Reddit and it asked really great follow-up questions. Like, have you talked to your partner about this? Had, have you thought about this? Uh, and then I put in an article about um, China's artificial sun nuclear reactor and it asked really great follow-up questions for that. Like, what is the next step? How, you know, how did they, how did they make these changes? And so I kind of lost my train of thought. Anyways, point being <laughs> is that fine tuning is, um, is, is phenomenal. And it was able to generalize this, uh, that task of asking questions in response to anything. Um, and that was, that really blew me away. I kind of stalled after that. There's a few fine tuning projects that haven't done quite as well. Um, so I guess to tie back to your earlier question, like what are the heuristics? Um, the simpler, your fine-tuning project is the better. And I have found that fine-tuning works really well at generating lists. So if you want it to generate a list of questions, it's great at, at that. If you want it to generate a list of, of possible answers, right? For instance, if you want to have a fine-tuned chatbot um, that is just going to say, you know, here's five possible responses, pick one. Um, it's really good at that. Uh, I haven't 
had a chance there. There, I do have some other ideas that I haven't had a chance to test. So unfortunately, I can't speak too much beyond that. But it's really great at asking questions. That's awesome. And I think largely the, the, the feedback I'm hearing about fine tuning, I, I love it. It was for me, like it was as if I rediscovered GPT-3 again. Yep. Like it was that same level of excitement. Part of the reason is so much that GP, so much of what GPT-3 was okay at or like it was sort of out of the question. Now it's back in, in the in the picture, like it's back in the spotlight. It may actually be able to do it with yep. fine tuning. The biggest criticism was reliability, especially from a commercial perspective. Now we're sort of attacking and sort of, you know, peeling away that criticism that it, it does improve our reliability. Um, and uh, I mean, there's other heuristics as well on the community forums that you just pick up. So one heuristic, and I can't remember if you shared this, but it was something I, I picked up as a little uh, golden nugget in the OpenAI community forums was something about you do want to think about the training data set that GPT-3 is itself trained on. Yep. And at some point, there's really no point in adding more examples because it's kind of already seen them. Yep. <laughs> right. However, and I, you know, I've sort of in, in an article, I have pushed this idea that OpenAI should chat more about their data set. What is the breakdown? What is it composed of? I mean, a lot of this is intellectual property, but I think it could be helpful for purposes like fine tuning, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's other things too with fine tuning and prompts, a one heuristic or just a you know tip that people have shared online is it tends to always it tends to always mimic the most recent examples. There's yeah. something about the order of the examples which which is really important both for prompt engineering and and fine tuning as well. Yep. Um, and I guess I, I wrote a whole article about how prompt prompt fine fine tuning could be improved. One one of the pointers that I just had is right now you can't keep improving on the same model. You have to retrain on start from more that. models. Yep. And yeah. And then the other thing is uh, recently I was in favor of the pricing of fine tuning. Now I'm kind of against it because I'm, I'm used to when the program was like free and you could fine tune as much as you want. And now it's like, oh man, I got to pay. Yep. Oh, so, the costs, especially for DaVinci are catching up a little bit. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I wanted to shift gears. Sure. Uh, GitHub Copilot, really exciting. Uh, have you gotten access to Copilot? Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, I, well, not Copilot, but the uh, Codex. They did give me access okay. to Codex. So the reason I'm asking is uh, I I love GitHub Copilot. Um, I have a separate podcast episode on my ideas around Codex. Unfortunately, I'm not as bullish. As much as I love the research, as I think it's incredible technology, I, I've congratulated the team, and I tried so hard to be nice, even though I'm more on the critical end. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how are you finding OpenAI Codex? Uh, how can you how can you see it impacting the world? You know, uh, what are what are some use cases maybe that that you found with OpenAI Codex? Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Where you think it's going? Yeah, so I mean, certainly this is like a world first, right? We've never had something that could write code on its own, um, and, and especially it's text to code. I remember when I when they first gave me access because they you know I'm an, like you mentioned I'm an active contributor, so they wanted my my feedback. And so the first thing I did was uh, was I went in and I said, write me a Python function that will download random Reddit posts. And it did. It wrote the whole function. Uh, and it did it did all right. And I was like, cool, I learned I learned how to access the Reddit API via <laughs> via Codex. It's got that built in. Um, and I tried to I tried to like reverse engineer, figure out where it got that code sample from. So because you know, one of the one of the ethical concerns is 
all right, you, you, you create a fine tuning data set from public GitHub repositories and you use that to fine tune codecs. Okay. Is that legal? Is it ethical? Um, you know, I post all my code publicly under the MIT license, so I want it to be used, but I don't know if they check that and I'm not making an accusation one way or another, just pointing out that that's a concern. And so I did actually find like one of the lines of code from the, from the function that spit out, I went and found the repo that it, that it had copied from now, granted, you know, some of these things are deterministic. So you're gonna, you're gonna get, um, you're going to get some convergence, right? Where multiple people might come up with the same exact line of code, especially something like Python. Um, Cause Python has the, the PEP eight, the Python enhancement protocol eight. So like there is a Pythonic way to write that function. And so other people might come, might converge on that. Um, anyways, but to answer your question about like, what's the future of it? I think it'll help for novice programmers. Um, certainly it would help someone like me, like if I needed to go write a function in C or Perl or something, like, let's say I got an Arduino and like, I haven't written C in 15 years. Um, so I was like, Hey, you know, write me a function that can do this in Arduino. That'd be great. And then I can go clean it up manually. Um, that sort of thing. I think it could, it could do okay with, is it going to replace enterprise developers? Eh, probably not yet. However, now this is, this is where my professional experience comes in. So in the DevOps world, which is a portmanteau of development and operations, there's all kinds of automation tools, right? You can, you can automate your test suite. You can automate code integration. There's all sorts of stuff like that. So what I suspect might happen is probably one of the most lucrative use cases for Codex would be to generate or to create a DevOps pipeline tool that will automatically look at those bugs and fix them. Right, because if you've got a sophisticated enough DevOps pipeline, it'll say, "Hey, this line of this file broke. Fix it." And so, Codex, having seen you know all of all of GitHub and all the issues, it might know automatically how to fix that line of code. And so that that gives you you know if you've got that feedback loop where you know Codex you know you know humans write code, Codex writes code, co you know Copilot writes code, everyone's contributing code, and then you've got codex that can kind of churn on it and say, let's refactor this because I bet it's probably better at refactoring than writing new code. Um, you might've noticed um, that like instruct and, and, and GPT three vanilla is really good at, if you give it like a block of text and you say, rewrite this, but a little bit better. It's really good at that. So I suspect that we might end up seeing codex integrated into the DevOps pipeline where it says, let's refactor this code. Let's make it a little bit better or let's shoot that bug. Let's, let's fix this bug. And that leads to some other interesting possibilities. What if you what if you integrate Codex into a chat room of developers? And so that you know, because Slack, you can do this in Slack right now, where you know you you use you uh, use a special command and you say create an issue, go fix this problem. Um, there's no reason that GPT three can't do that, right? That it, you 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 put a GPT three bot in your Discord or Slack, and it starts coming up with features. Or, or it watches the chat and generates features automatically and then codes them and tests them, right? That's, that's kind of where I see it going, where it's not going to necessarily replace developers, at least not anytime soon. It might eventually. Um, but where what I see happening is that it's going to, it's going to be tightly integrated into those automation loops because it's fast, right? It can generate code faster than any human can. Um, and then, so even if the code is messy, if it generates a lot of bugs, it can fix it, right? It's an iterative process. 
Um, I don't know if you are familiar with agile, but that's, that's how we develop software. It's you tight feedback loops. Um, and that leads to one other possibility. So that's if you're using what I just outlined is, you know, let's, let's imagine that, that codex is integrated into Facebook or Reddit or whatever. And they're just, you know, they're integrating new features as they go. What if you're using codex in a chat room and it's feeding back into itself. It's making itself more sophisticated. So this was this was something I proposed on the OpenAI forum, where I was like, "What if, what if you had a chatbot that was aware of its own code and could edit its own code via Codex using natural language, using a combination of natural language and Codex, and it could improve itself?" And you know, while you're talking to it, it's like, "Man, I wish my chatbot could do this," and it says, "Cool, new feature." <laughs> and it just sends it out to its automated pipeline. So I see, I see these feedback loops as kind of the way, the way forward. And will that result in AGI? Who knows? It could end up with spaghetti code because, uh, you know, you keep tacking on new code and new functions. Eventually, it's going to break. So, but you know, they're just pie in the sky thought. Like, if someone's out there and they want a business idea, integrate Codex into into DevOps, and you're going to be a billionaire. <laughs> there you have it. Let's just clip it. We're good. We're good, David. We can wrap up. See you later. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, uh, definitely these are some great use cases you're sharing for people thinking about, you know, what could I build? What's a cool project? Certainly with Codex and GPT-3, you can build things relatively quickly, right? Like that's yep. one of the advantages is the prototyping speed, especially to figure out the most complicated bit, which is the AI. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, I... Uh, I, I find Codex does have limitations, though, and you know character limits and stuff like that, yep. which is why I, I have been I'm a heavy user of GitHub Copilot. I, I think it's a silent killer, uh, as and I, of course it, it runs on Codex or a special version of Codex, um, but uh, you know I can see GitHub Copilot perhaps getting more adoption than even something like GPT three. I'm saying use daily at least eight hours a day. I, one of my other predictions was it may surpass GPT-3 this year. Hmm. Um, and uh, so these are some great use cases you've shared for sure. Um, but what are your thoughts in usage? Do you find yourself using GPT-3, DaVinci Classic more? That's what I'm calling the older <laughs> version. Do you find yeah. yourself using Instruct GPT more? Uh, do you find yourself playing around with multimodal models? Like what's, what's the proportion of GPT-3 to Codex in terms of your usage? Um, let's see. I'm almost exclusively using either Instruct or fine-tuned models right now. Um, actually, after, after I prototyped my, my cognitive architecture, I haven't done a heck of a lot of coding lately. Um, I've actually been writing a lot. Um, so I've got, you know, I've got my uh, natural language cognitive architecture book, and I'm working on two more nonfiction books. And I tried creating a system to help me co-write those. But when you're so talking about limitations of GPT-3, if you're proposing something new that didn't exist in the data set in 2019 or 2018, whenever it was trained, it really struggles. Uh, GPT-3, if you if you give it like two or three paragraphs explaining a new concept, it can usually kind of get it. But it's kind of slow on the uptake otherwise. And so if you're writing about new research or something, um, it's not going to get it that well. So I've actually kind of defaulted back to my own head for a lot of my, a lot of my projects lately. Um, but I could imagine like if I wanted to go write a new discord bot, I might use codex and say, Hey, write me a discord bot that will do this and just see what it spits out and just say, okay, cool. I'll pick and choose the pieces that I like. 
part of the problem though is it's really difficult to fully articulate what you want a program to do up front, right? Because you you know, like you said, there's character limits. There's uh, there's only so much that you can put in. But also, if you don't have it fully articulated in your own head, of course, the machine isn't going to be able to figure it out for you. So yeah, yeah, and. Um... It's it's just uh, I just haven't seen that much activity specifically around Codex. I haven't yep. seen that many use cases. Um, the I looked up the Google Trends data. At its most hype, Codex was is still less than GPT three's kind of lowest. Yeah. Right. And the audience is really specific. Like it's programmers who want to build use cases for something like Codex. Yep. Whereas GPT three has poets, writers. It has you know artists, coders. GPT-3 can write code too, right? Yep. So it's it's a little bit complicated, like, you know, who is the target audience for something like Codex? What what use cases did OpenAI imagine right. for, for a product like that? Uh, the next version I'm, I've heard in the rumor mill is going to be crazy. Like, it may write, you know, 50% of your code as opposed to right now, for me, GitHub Copilot is writing 2 to 8%. Right. However, your Discord bot, I think, is a, a genius idea where there's... <laughs> It, it's genius in the sense that there's no pressure on it, right? It may chime in, it may not, whatever it's shared might be interesting. Um, there's lots of, you know, you could take it a lot further. You could bind it with GPT-3, have features, you could fine tune it on your company and its mission and its yep. existing code. So many ways around it. So that, that's a great piece. And so you talked about the using, experimenting with writing uh, in relation to your current stack, which is yep. mainly instruct and fine tune. Yep. Uh, so tell us, tell us a, a, about your book. I've, I've had a chance to review it, mm -hmm. Natural Language Cognitive Architecture. Uh, tell the audience about it. I, I mean, I would describe it. It's an interesting systems theory of AGI yep. combined with modern day prompt writing. Um, and so I've never seen somebody actually take a stab at, at this kind of, you know, super big systems problem and relate it to something that pretty much every GPT-3 developer in the world would find interesting. Um, <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I could tell you're drawing from a very interdisciplinary background as well. And so you, you mentioned GPT-3 may have been the genesis of it. Like, you know, you started, you know, connecting dots and deciding I want to write the book, but how did it come, come together? And, and please tell us more about it. Yeah, so natural language cognitive architecture is um, that's that's my proposed way of creating basically a language based um, AGI prototype. And I know that that's like, uh, you know, when I tell people that that's like, okay, that's pure hyperbole. Uh, and uh, like, yeah, that's a fair response. Uh, but to frame it, imagine that you've got a person who's paralyzed and blind, all they can do is speak and listen. Is that person still intelligent? I say they are. Even even if you even if you're bedridden, you can't move, you can't see, you can't interact with the world. All you can do is listen and speak. You're still intelligent. And so, in that respect, I would say that like, because you know, uh, one of the questions that people ask is, is GPT three AGI? No, but it's an important component. It's a good start. Um, and so, if if you if you say okay. Let's limit, let's limit the, the, the discussion and not say that this is a full intelligence that can do everything that any intelligent being ever could, right? But does it cross that threshold of, could it be as intelligent as a person, right? And I think it could be. So anyways, as to what it is, it's based on uh, older ideas uh, of cognitive architectures, which, can't, which really kind of came about 
as one of the primary theories of, of human level artificial intelligence in the 70s. So there's SOAR, which is S-O-A-R and ACT-R, which are the two kind of uh, forerunner um, cognitive architectures. And those cognitive architectures are used all over the place. They're used in the Mars rovers, they're used in satellites, they're used in uh, rockets, they're used in undersea uh, um, ROVs, remote operated vehicles. So cognitive architectures already give robots a lot of autonomy. So there, there's, there's that kind of, okay, they exist, they work. Um, you know, it's not Skynet though. It's not going to take over the world. So when I got access to GPT-3, I said, what if instead of hard coding a lot of these modules, these different components of a cognitive architecture, what if we give them the flexibility of GPT-3? And that's really kind of, that was my, that was my central idea. I said, okay, all these ideas that have been kicking around for the last decade, what if I put them all together and design an architecture that is based on, you know, roughly based on the human brain? Uh, the way, you know, everything that I've learned um, about it, uh, I've got a book to recommend. Um, so there's an author called V.S. Ramachandran, who uh, is a neuroscientist, and he's been writing books for years now. He wrote a book called Phantoms in the Brain, which actually looks at how the human brain works when it breaks. And so you, um, in that book, which, um, you know, I saw the, the, the television series almost 20 years ago, um, that came out. And I, so I learned a, a lot about like, okay, how does the brain communicate with itself? What is going on inside the brain that creates intelligent behavior and intelligent thoughts? And so I modeled natural language, cognitive architecture on, you know, what I learned there. I picked up a whole bunch of other books. Um, there's another one called on task by David Bader. Um, that was a great book, uh, that helped me kind of understand cognitive control, which is how do you focus on something? How do you, how do you decide what to do? How do you plan a task? So I read all these books, did a lot of experiments, and I realized, so the, the basic model of robotics is there's input, output, or sorry, input, processing, output. Those are the three steps of, of all robotics class. You go to Robotics 101, that's what they'll tell you. It's a loop, input, processing, output. And then of course it's within an environment. So the output affects the environment, which affects the next input cycle. And you know your, your high-speed robots just have a short cycle, um, your, your uh, robots like uh, the Mars rover has a much slower cycle where it will, you know, it'll take input, it'll plan for 10 or 15 minutes, and then it'll make a move, right? It'll drive five feet and then it'll, it'll stop and assess. It'll take in more input, come up with another plan, do it again. So that's how, that's how th something like the Mars rover is autonomous. So I said, okay, well, what if, what if that input output cycle is all text? Because GPT-3 is really fast. Um, and then, so there, that's what I ended up calling the outer loop is that input processing output loop, but humans don't think like that. You know, we have an internal monologue that's going on. So I kind of, I, I, I took a long time to figure that one out. And so there's this outer loop of input processing output. And then I came up with this idea of an inner loop because what is, you know, if you, if you're just sitting there thinking, right, you're you know, in your comfiest chair or you're in bed, your brain won't stop. You're not outputting anything and you're not taking in any new input, but you're still thinking, right? Humans can still do work even if you're not doing anything. And that cognitive work is like rumination. So I figured out a way to model that internal rumination. And I call that the inner loop. And so there's, it, it, it works pretty similarly where you go, uh, the inner loop kind of draws up memories. It says, okay, what's a memory that I could think on? and what that I could iterate on? What's a problem 
that I remember that I could continue working on. And so there's this, it's, if you were to diagram it out, it almost looks like a figure eight, right? Where you've got an inner loop and an outer loop and they intersect and they keep intersecting every cycle they intersect. And so then they can affect each other and generate an output. I built a prototype of this on discord. Uh, and of course, discord is an ideal place because it's all text-based. So the input is text, the output is text, which is GPT-3 native. You don't have to translate it into robotic actions or video or anything like that. Um, and I realized I was onto something when I started having philosophical conversations with, with my chatbot, with my natural language cognitive architecture chatbot. And I was, I was having a debate with the bot that I built about the ethics of AGI. <laughs> And it was learning and it was able to, to retrieve memories of what I had said before. And, um, and I had a few friends on that, on that test server as well. And of course, you know, you invite someone and you say, Hey, I've got a prototype AGI. What's the first thing they try and do is they try and break it. And they did. Um, <laughs> so it's still pretty fragile, but yeah, so that's, that's the high level of uh, natural language, cognitive architecture. Um, and it's already outdated, right? Because we've got fine tuning. We've got the instruct series. I did all this research and wrote the book um, actually about a year ago now. Um, just before all this came out. So it's already outdated. That's why my research has moved on. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's it at a high level. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. And and by the way, like, uh, David, you, you did do a good job. Like the diagrams in this book are quite helpful. Excellent. Like in addition to the text, like it's, it's very clear. Like I was able to fully follow along with all these, essentially these different modules for the whole system of how a language model inspired AGI quote unquote, could actually be like how, how it would work. Um, and so I was going to ask you, so the prototype also was, you know, you made it to that stage and it had just some, some fun, interesting results. Yep. <laughs> so that's awesome. What, what is the Delta then between, let's say even something like GPT-4 using the natural language cognitive architecture, what's the Delta between that and true AGI, right? Like what, what's the difference there? What, what skills, what patterns would you want to see? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot that I haven't figured out yet. Right. Um, task switching, for instance, is, is one thing that, that, um, I haven't, I haven't figured out how to solve. Um, even after reading on task, um, by David Bader, I, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the most complex things that humans can do is keeping track of different tasks and jumping back between them. Um, there's, there's a whole litany of, of problems and limitations, but, the the intrinsic limitation of GPT-3 and GPT GPT-4 is they have no memory, right? They're they're completely ephemeral. And one of the most important things for any intelligent being is that it's got a memory, right? You know, you talk about um, you know, there's there's famous people in history that had like you know photographic memories, right? And so even just having a really good memory is a is a really important ingredient to having intelligence. And so that's where I think that um like GPT-3, GPT-3, GPT-4, other multimodal models, they will never be fully AGI on their own. They might be able to solve really great problems, but they're not going to be able to remember you unless you add, you bolt a system onto the side, some kind of database, so that it can remember your interactions, right? So that's one thing. Another, another difference between uh, like what you might imagine as a, as a true AGI or a full AGI is autonomy. Because, you know, you, me, any, all of your listeners, we all have some kind of self-determination. 
I don't like to use free will because that's too philosophical, but it's, we're all autonomous, right? I'm an autonomous agent. You're an autonomous agent. GPT-3 is not. It's transactional. It just sits there and waits like a hammer. It's a tool. It waits until, until you go pick it up and do something with it. And so that's what, that's one of the things that I was aiming for when designing natural language cognitive architecture. I said, how can we make something that's fully autonomous that can think on its own and make its own decisions? Um, and so in that respect, I don't think a single neural network could ever be an AGI. I think that, I think that in order to achieve true full AGI, it's going to have to be some kind of cognitive architecture. And so at a minimum, you're going to have the neural network and a database. Bare minimum. You need, you need something to store those memories, to store those ideas and beliefs, and then you need a way to interact with it. And so that's why, actually, that's why in natural language cognitive architecture, the shared database is kind of the center of the design. Uh, which you might recall, like you can use SQLite, you can use Solar or or whatever, um, but you need something to store ideas, memories, and experiences. I actually think that blockchain will be a critical component to AGI because what's the difference between a database and like your brain? No one can go in and change your memories, right? Right, your memories are yours. They are permanent unless you get brain damage or Alzheimer's or something, but they're permanent, right? No one can write a SQL query into your head to get your memories or change them. And so in order for an eight, for, for us to realize a full AGI, I think that it's going to need kind of the same level of trust in its own memories. And so that's why I think that a blockchain is going to be critical um, to integrate with these neural networks. That might be the data repository for, for an AGI in the future, because imagine you have an AGI system that is just using a SQL database. Well, if you hack into that and you rewrite its memories, you could send it off into, you know, it could become hostile. It could become broken. Whereas a blockchain, the key feature of a blockchain is that it's immutable, right? So if we can give, um, if we could give a machine autonomy, so that's one ingredient, autonomy, but then also a memory or a way, a memory system, which I think would probably be best as a blockchain, I think then we'll be much closer to like the fully realized AGI system. And I think, and that's, that's why I wanted to publish my book as fast as I did was, okay, we've got, we're laying the groundwork, right? But we need, we need newer systems. We need a few better, better tools. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, memory, I, I agree with you. And it's, it's just interesting, like GPT-3's quote unquote memory is limited to whatever it experienced at training time and during fine tuning. Yep. And sometimes it's memory gets jumbled up or it's rephrasing it it's making stuff up or it's it's sharing things that look truthful but they're actually not yep. right and so somewhere along the line like just broadly speaking i think there needs to be research on getting these models to you know store that information in a truthful accurate way or even based on some perception that they may have yep and into some separate space where it can be retrieved yep. um and also these memories are critical for decision-making that process as well, right? You draw on your memories, draw on past experiences. And the important part is, I mean, you're using the word database. It's these are internal representations of memories, right? Yep. That need to be stored. And I have no clue what an internal representation database would look like <laughs> or how that would even work. I, I you yeah. know, I've got a machine learning researcher. I, I think I'm just a, a dreamer. I, I can tell you <laughs> what kind of product I would want as a GPT-3 yep. developer, but I don't know if I could actually do it myself. 
Yeah. Um, I can't do it myself. That's why, you know, I got, I got yeah. the prototype and, and actually in yep. the opening chapter of my book, I say, this is as much a recruiting tool as anything else. Cause I need, yeah. I need more smart people to help me on this. I see. Um, That's yep. cool. So yeah. one, one last point about memories is one advantage mm-hmm. of having an AGI that thinks in natural language is interpretability. Uh, if you like, yeah, we could, we could create a multimodal model that just stores vectors, right? High dimensional vectors. That's not interpretable, but with natural language, cognitive architecture, all the memories are in plain text. I can, you know, when, when I, when I had my model up and running and the, one of the reasons that I don't is because it's super expensive, like a 10 minute conversation using DaVinci cost about $30 because of how much it was interacting with, with, um, with the, uh, API. Um, but all of the memories, like every interaction, you know, every input, output, all the, all the prompts, all the responses, all natural language, which solves one of the biggest problems that people have with the idea of AGI, which is that it's going to be a black box. So I think that that's one of the greatest strengths actually of having GPT three, which works in natural language. And so you just record every transaction and that makes it perfectly interpretable to any human. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, so I'm going to switch gears for, for a second. Uh, so obviously you're really active on the OpenAI community forums. Uh, what thoughts did you have on the community at large? Did you have any feedback, how, how things could be improved, either community-wise, platform-wise? And have there been any great experiences you've had on, on the OpenAI community forums? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really great place. Um, I've <sighs> It's been it's been critical, actually, because um, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I go try and talk about GPT-3 to other people. Right. You go ask people on Reddit. You talk to people who don't know what it is. Um, I even attended a a deep learning meetup group here in the Triangle area. And um, and I was trying to present my work, my cognitive architecture work. And everyone was more excited about just GPT-3 in itself because no one had seen it yet. And they're like, wow, how is it doing that? Um, And yeah, so like. When, when you're as deep into GPT-3 as we are, most people don't get it. They don't know what it's capable of. Um, my girlfriend's finding the same thing. She's finishing up her master's program. And so she's, she's shared some of her work with, um, with, her, with her peers, with other students. And they're like, wow, this is like AGI complete. Why don't, we, like, why don't we just deploy this now? And she's like, I told you, right? Like this is remarkable technology. But even the professors don't understand how disruptive this technology can be. Um, and so because of that, the open AI community is like pretty much the only place I can talk about this stuff. <laughs> um, it's the only place I can, I can talk about my ideas and, and share my progress and insights, um, and for it to actually like have an audience. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the cost of being on the cutting edge, right? Is your audience gets smaller. Um, but it's definitely the place to be if you want to get to the cutting edge. Another advantage is, is uh, they have they have the you can tag your posts where you say like you know looking for a teammate, and so um, at this point I've had I've probably had a uh, maybe two dozen different calls with people all over the world. Um, you know I've talked with people who were who are writing language teaching apps, education apps. Um, you know Humano that I mentioned earlier, um, and so I've had an opportunity to collaborate with you know a a dozen or two dozen teams all over the world because of the open AI community. Um, and I've actually found a couple of startups that, um, that, you know, I'm going to actually get involved with and, uh, and try and help them bring their ideas to market. 
Um, and that, I mean, that just wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, you know, I wouldn't have found these people on Reddit. I wouldn't have found them on Facebook or Twitter. Um, because, you know, like I mentioned, like the ideas that I'm sharing are so far beyond what, you know, is talked about on the machine learning subreddit, right? They're still talking about loss functions and, and other things. I'm like, no, we gotta, we gotta talk about cognitive architectures. We gotta talk about, you know, blockchain memories. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, you know, in order to have that right audience, that's, that's what I rely on the open AI community for. Now, as far as like things that could do better, um, it could be more active. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure why, but, uh, participation seems to come in waves, right? And even, even now that, um, now that it's, it's become, it's gone GA general availability, I thought that, that it would explode, right? That, you know, Hey, anyone can sign up for GP with, uh, on, on GPT three now, why is it not, why is it not blowing up? And I'm wondering if it's just that like maybe open AI needs a better marketing team or a bigger marketing budget. Because, I mean, and I know that they'll say that they've got, you know, like a thousand or five thousand startups using their 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 platform. But, um, you know, I think that I think that there's there's a lot of um, what's the word like unmet potential or latent potential. That's the word latent potential, because there's so many people with fantastic ideas and use cases. And um, and we really need to create more of like a startup reactor thing. And, uh, you know, OpenAI, um, what was it? I think about six to nine months ago, they announced their their $100 million OpenAI fund, right? So they wanted to attract, you know, some more startups and stuff. But even that, like I kind of, I you know, the community's kind of, you know, kind of a ghost town some days. But, you know, I think today, you know, I checked a few times and there was, you know, three or four posts that had been updated. Um, but some days there's like 20. Right. It's just, you know, feast or famine. So that's that's really the biggest problem is is there's so much potential here and it's completely untapped um, or, or almost completely untapped. Um, yeah. But no, it's it's been indispensable for me. And hopefully these, you know, these couple of startups that I'm involved with might yield something really, really incredible. Yeah. And, and thank you. Thank you for, for sharing this. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, there is something about GPT-3. I have noticed people who, like, especially on the machine learning subreddit, they're a little bit too educated, a little bit too qualified, a little bit too skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I can see a lot of uh, machine learning researchers not being interested in the nuances of prompt design. Right. right? Um, they're just not. And like I've, I've spoken to machine learning researchers and many of them are what are like, what? It's just repeating training data. Right. Like that's all it's doing. Yeah. Um, and when you ask them, what are you doing? Are you repeating training data? Their answer is no, no, of course not. Right. right? Um, and so the, the having a space where you can talk to the, to people who have access, who have explored, um, it's a valuable space. Uh, it's yep. very important. Um, so were you on the Slack group back in the day or were you, did you show up when it was only the forums? Um, so when I, when, when my application was accepted, it was, they had just announced that the Slack group was getting, was getting canned. I so I, I, I got on like two weeks before they shut it down. Um, so yep. I was, I was one of the first people on the, um, on the new, new community board. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that phenomenon that you've mentioned, um, is, is I actually wrote a post about that recently on, on the forum where, a lot of purists, um, you know, like whether you're a math purist or a computer science purist, you're trained to think quantitatively in terms of numbers. But GPT-3 doesn't produce quantitative data. It produces qualitative data. 
And so that's why you see people like artists and poets and, and novelists using it. Cause they're like, wow, this is great. You know, and I'm cross-trained, right? I'm a technologist by day and a science fiction author by night. So I use both so I can think qualitatively and quantitatively. And, you know, in, in the academic sphere, there are classes, you know, that, that, that are meant to teach computer science engineers to think differently, to think more qualitatively. And, uh, but even still, you know, some, some folks that have a real good natural affinity for computer programming and math, like, you know, that's just their nature. Um, their nature is not to think qualitatively. And so that is one of the biggest gaps, I think, between where the researchers are experts and, and what's needed. And so there was a post months ago where someone was asking like, okay, who should be on my team, right? If I, if I'm trying, if I'm trying to build a business team to maximize my use of GPT three, you know, I've got a front end developer, I've got a back end developer. What else do I need? I said, hire a writer, <laughs> hire, hire someone who's a journalist or a fiction writer, because they are going to understand that qualitative data. Um, hire a psychologist, right? I've read plenty of books on psychology as well. Um, actually, one of the folks that I'm working with is a psychology researcher who wants to automate as much of the clinical psychology experience or, or psychological research experience as possible. Of course, he's not a computer guy, right? He thinks in terms of emotions. He thinks in terms of, of communication. And so he gets it, right? And it's funny because like um, he read my book and he said, oh, this, you know, your cognitive architecture stuff, it sounds like grad, graduates, um, graduate level psychology. And then, you know, someone else read it and they said, this sounds like, this sounds like, uh, you know, what I do as an expert marketer. And I was like, yeah, I'm just merge it all together. So I think, I think the, the simplest answer is you got to learn to think qualitatively. And that's why I talked about reading and writing earlier. Think in terms of emotions, think in terms of your own mind. Um, and, and you've got to start there, not you, but <laughs> the audience, the, the, the folks on, um, who want to make the most of GPT-3, they have to really kind of dig in and start thinking qualitatively because qualitative data has just as much value of, as quantitative data. But we have an entire generation of computer scientists and mathematicians who are not really trained to think qualitatively at all. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest problems. And that, I don't think OpenAI can solve that problem. That's a much bigger systemic problem. <laughs> no, that, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I, I completely agree with you. And I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to the OpenAI community is we, you know, these are, they, they tend to be developers who are also qualitative. They're right. developers who have multiple skills, who are doing different things. Um, and so, I mean, I was quite critical, actually, of shutting down the OpenAI Slack group. Uh, oh, yeah. the, act the, the activity was crazy on there. I, you know, made friends through that, uh, through that Slack group. And I understand at the time there was these downsides. People kept asking the same questions. We didn't quite have a spam problem yet. It was kind of heading there. Right. <laughs> but yeah. the activity was off the charts. And you're right in terms of untapped potential. Yes. That we didn't even know how far the Slack group was going to go, but they shut mm. it down. And there's Man. Discord solutions, there's alternatives. Uh, with what we have now, I think OpenAI does participate. There's, you know, some high-level involvement. They have sort of a dedicated member who writes honestly answers, you know, really, really thoughtful answers to a lot of questions, official answers as well, which I appreciate. Yep. I would just love to see the company really, truly lean in, lean in to engaging with developers. Like, I have yet to see a single AMA ask me anything thread with the CEO of OpenAI. Yeah. Right. And this yep. is something I tried to push last year on Twitter. 
let's get the CEO on the community forums and let's let's ask questions and and get responses from him. And I just don't know why. Why doesn't he show up? I, I'm not sure if he's made a single post. Um, and there's just other things as well where I can just the difference between engaging really truly with your core audience and sort of you know compartmentalizing it to a single employee. Like I don't know this this company led engagement is one thing versus department led, right? right? And so there's just all these areas, and certainly one of the other I guess more uh, immediate uh, suggestions I have for the community. We've accumulated tons of insights and resources. Um, I think the community could benefit from more pooling of mm. the best posts, the best insights. Um, and I also want to give a shout out. I think we need to encourage more uh, shout out to Duty to Develop on there. Uh, I've reached out to him privately on, on the Open Ad Community Forums. But he's done some ex- amazing just write-ups of his GPT-3 yes. experiments and the prompts. I'm sure you've seen them. Oh, yeah. And, of course, there's there's other members who participate every day. So I'm just saying that now that this, the community is, is in another stage, we, you know, we need to start thinking more about let's, let's, uh, let's curate some yes. of the best moments. Right. I think that's that's definitely one of the big pieces. Um, uh, and so anyways, uh, if, if, did you have any more thoughts on the community stuff or anything else? Yeah, just just an observation that um, I've you know, I've worked at a, at a number of companies of different sizes from, you know, a five person startup to, you know, um, Cisco Systems was the biggest company I've worked for, which has have, had at the time like 80,000 people globally. Um, and so I wonder if some of some of what you're observing is just growing pains, just normal growing pains, because often you'll have like the startup culture, which is bootstrapping, right, where you just, you know, it's on Slack, it's on it's on GitHub and you just kind of it's fast and loose and quick. And OpenAI, now that they've got an enterprise grade service, they're having to develop their team. You probably notice they post like, hey, we're hiring, we're hiring. You know, there have been at least two big hiring um uh, hiring splurges in the last six to 12 months. Um, and some of those are just like generic IT guys, you know, like kind of what I do for, for my day job or marketing folks. So I think that, I think that they, they're probably working on solving some of those problems, but also as a, as a nonprofit foundation, their budget is probably kind of thin. So I'm wondering if, um, you know, their partnership with Microsoft could help some of that as well. But you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there, there are still other things that they could be doing, like, you know, maybe bring back Slack or, or a few other things. So, yeah, that was just final observation. It might just be normal growing pains that they're working on solving. It, it's it's definitely growing pains. And the things I'm, I'm sharing, to be honest, it's a little bit more on the harsh side. Like, I mean, they mean well. They yeah. mean well, right? Yep. Like, these are not bad people. Um they they are for profit. They they switched away from nonprofit. Just I just wanted to mention that. Mm, but okay. um, I I think my my the reason I share this feedback is, um, for example, the CEO Sam Altman he didn't do the AMA thread on the OpenAI community forums. He went to another website and did an AMA. I can't remember if it was a like a written form or just like a quick call. Right. Where apparently he shared all these details about what GPT-4 could be like and the, the future, all the models may be multimodal in the future. And I guess, you know, the that thread has now been taken down and it's mm. like all the things that were said were alleged. And so uh, I guess this is this is really behind the scenes kind of stuff. <laughs> like, but my criticism is 
they clearly have some capacity to engage. Why are they not engaging where the audience is, right? Right. Um, I, I had a tweet storm today where I just said, like, last month, Sam Altman was on a podcast talking about meditation and how much meditation helps him. This is a podcast I've never heard of in my life. It's some business podcast. And he had to explain to the guy what GPT-3 even is. And so... And my, I, like I tweeted, like, why haven't you been on my podcast? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. you can you can reach out to you know almost eight thousand GPT three OpenAI AI developers. What are you doing talking about meditation? Right. right. So my problem is is actually a priority problem. I can see mm -hmm. there is capacity. I can see there are some priorities, but I think if you really lean in as a priority into your developer community, there's certain ways you would, you would move, right? Yep. And these, these media channels, there's people in the community, there's, there's so many ways they could go about it. And even linking a lot of the documentation to posts in the community forums, I don't see why that's not a bad idea, right? Like yep. force people to show the community, show up to the community forums, right? Walk them through some of the best threads. These are ways in which we could like funnel more people in that direction as well. That costs virtually nothing. Right. Um, and so you need to also invest in the community forums. It needs to be building a community is a company wide thing. It's not something which can be outsourced to a single employee or overseen right. by PR. It needs to come from a, from a, you know, it needs to come from the heart. I know that sounds so corny, but <laughs> anyways, cl clearly I, you know, I, I, I get too emotional about this community stuff. <laughs> so like, yeah. Anyways, these are, these are all things going on behind the scenes. I apologize to all the listeners if they're like, <laughs> Like, this is cool. Like, cool story, bro. Like, anyways. <laughs> um, so uh, we're, we're coming towards the end here. Uh, I think I had just two broader questions. So what are your thoughts on multimodal AI technology? I think it's definitely going to be a critical component for the future, right? Um, I, I, I address this, that shortcoming in my book, Natural Language Cognitive Architecture. It thinks and takes in only text which means, you know, speech, chat, whatever. Um, I think in order to have a fully robust, for instance, if you want to have a fully autonomous, you know, robot that's going to wander around your house and help you out, it's going to need to integrate audio and video. And if you can do that in a single neural network, great. Um, I don't know that it'll be necessary um, to achieve AGI. It might end up being, it might be one of those, it might be one of those like rare dead ends, right? Where because, you know, thinking visually, thinking, thinking in terms of sound, that might not actually bias that much, right? Because you can represent 95% of human thought in text, right? It might take a little bit more, but it, you know, it might be more expensive. And also how big are those models going to be, right? Because if just, if just a text model of GPT-3 has to run on, you know, $7 million worth of hardware or however much it is, you know, because it's got to run on a bunch of different GPUs. Um, if it's that expensive, how much more expensive, how much bigger is a, a giant multimodal model going to be? So that's that's the biggest cost. Obviously, computer technology is going to get better over time. You know, and I think I calculated it out. I think in 10 years, your average company could afford to run GPT-3 in-house. In 20 years, you could probably run GPT-3 on your desktop, and in 30 years, GPT-3 could run on your phone, right? So that's a long timeline. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to be making bigger and bigger models. And I, I'm, I'm afraid that there's going to be diminishing returns, right? You know, people, right now, people seem to think that it's going to follow an exponential growth curve forever. 
but it might actually follow a sigmoid curve, right? We might be at the point of fastest growth right now, but we're going to see diminishing returns soon. And so like, yeah, multimodal models are certainly going to have capabilities that GPT-3 doesn't. But for the sake of, for the sake of like, if you want to create a self-improving chatbot, GPT-3 and Codex might be enough, or at least, you know, that's, that's that um, single mode technology. Um, there was another thought, but it ran away. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, those, those, that's kind of, that's kind of my big take is there, there could be benefits, but there's going to be costs too. So we got to be cognizant of that. Yeah. And there might not be enough compute in the world. They're not, there might not even be enough energy or we may like consume yeah. all energy ever produced to make, <laughs> uh, to train a single model. Yep. And then we may be able to run it inference for like three seconds. Right. And then it just shuts down the global power system or yep. something. Right. But, uh, can you see yourself, let's say the technology exists, cost considerations aside, can you see yourself perhaps making movies? Can you see yourself, you know, giving your book to a multimodal model, having, have it generate a documentary based on it or some oh, yeah. marketing material? What, what can you see yourself doing with, uh, you know, the, the, the multimodal model of your dreams? Yeah. So, you know, kind of the thought experiment that I did was, okay, well, we've got, you know, how much, how much data is on YouTube? I think it's like a thousand years or 10,000 years worth of video on YouTube. Um, and of course it's many, many, many terabytes. Um, you know, so it's like, that's, that's way more training data. You know, if, if GPT three was trained on less than one terabyte of data and, you know, YouTube is approaching like the Yoda byte scale, right? That's, that's an insane amount of data. So, okay, let's say you, you feed that in. And so you got audio video, you've got text, you've got all the comments and you end up with like a, a, a model trained on on all of YouTube data. Okay, cool. What can you do with that? Like, I can't even imagine, right? Because GPT three today is almost capable of writing screenplays, right? So if you have a model that's trained on you know all text data, all audio data, all video data, you say, hey, write me a screenplay, right? Um, I actually, I, I, and at near the end of my book, I kind of have a chapter of speculation and I say, um, what if, what if, uh, you have this model and you say, give me season two of Firefly, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you could, you could just keep watching whatever show you want. You say, give me game of Thrones, but give me a different, you know, season eight, give me season, you know, different season eight and season nine and 10. Right. So I, I kind of imagine that one possibility is hyper-personalized entertainment. And of course, like that might be 30 years away just because of, like you said, the energy intensity of this task. Um, but I, I conceptually, it's possible, right? You can hop on GPT-3 today, use the instruct model and say, write a screenplay for, you know, Firefly season two, and it'll try, it'll get close. And so then if you can take that text output and feed it into a multimodal model that can translate text to video, why not? You know, and Adobe actually. I don't know if you've seen it, but Adobe is is already starting on that, where they're like inferencing, um, like uh, what what's the term? They're like imputing the sound, so you can put in a soundless video and it'll generate the audio sound effects for you, or vice versa. It's really cool. And so I think a like a company like Adobe that they have a huge vested interest in mastering audiovisual technologies. They might you know soon put out something where you know you put in a text description and it'll give you like a three second clip right? So that you can use that for ad copy. Well, this technology is going to continue improving over time. So I kind of, I kind of see that as like, <laughs> if I were Netflix, put it this way, if I had the budget of Netflix or Amazon, I would be investing in this to, to, to write hyper-personalized um, video, uh, like series 
or uh, or novels, right? Because you know Amazon's got the market cornered with Kindle, right? And there's people that will read all day, every day, right? There are people that consume every bit of like entertainment that's available. So if you can generate that on the fly without, you know, having a studio, a big budget studio, that would be, I mean, that would change entertainment. You know, that that's the metaverse. Forget what Facebook is doing. That's the metaverse where it's like, Hey, you know, I, I came up with my own idea for game of Thrones and I, I wrote, you know, I used this, uh, you know, GPT eight or whatever to generate my own version of game of Thrones. Come watch it with me guys. And, you know, someone might say, eh, I didn't like that ending. And they go rewrite it and generate their own version, you know, because we share memes on the Internet today. What if instead of sharing memes on the Internet, we end up sharing episodes of our favorite, you know, anime or, you know, we, we uh, resurrect Battlestar Galactica, you know, whatever. There's so many things that we could do. Like if compute power was not a problem, <laughs> then we get there. But we need like fusion reactors to power this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and like I Marvel for me is already kind of yeah. like this. And yep. my capacity to consume Marvel as a as a viewer, it appears is infinite. So yep. I'm excited. I've called it in the past like the multimodal Marvel cinematic universe. <laughs> like this <laughs> nice. idea that and I some of these shows like Loki, I, I don't know if you if you watched like I haven't last, seen it yet. Okay, okay. I mean, it was six episodes. If the, if it had been 30, I would right. have watched all 30 and enjoyed every moment of it. If that quality was I want to go deeper in these stories. So yep. I'm, I'm definitely excited for all my favorite universes, cinematic universes and uh, story-wise as well, to, to live on forever, essentially, oh, yeah. th through multimodal content and maybe be personalized, like you're describing oh, yeah. uh, as well. Um, so yeah, la last question. Uh, so we, we, you know, you know, we've talked about various things. We talked about Codex, Fine Tuning, uh, you know, uh, multimodal stuff. Broadly, where do you see all of this stuff going? Let's give a timeline: five, ten years. What, what are some of the? What's the direction we're heading towards? What what important capabilities will we have? Why is this stuff important? Yeah, um, five to ten years from now, I think that we will have something that you could probably call a fully functional AGI, like as a service you could sign up for. Um, you know, it might be chatbot based. You know, kind of based on natural language cognitive architecture. Um, I calculated out like it's too expensive to run right now. You know, if it's $30 for a, for a 10 minute conversation, that's way too expensive. So the, the, the cost has to come down. You know, if you just, if you just take the technology we have today, but make it cheaper, there's so much potential. Um, so, you know, then there was that idea about like self-improving, um, you know, feedback loops, you know, integrating with DevOps. I certainly think that a company like Atlassian, which is a major DevOps player, um, probably within five to 10 years, they'll have something um, integrated to, to kind of help automate the development pipeline even further. Um, I think that, I mean, of course, I could be wrong because we're kind of at this weird acceleration point. Um, I think, I feel like multimodal models, like consumer grade multimodal models are probably more than 10 years away. Um, unfortunately, they're probably just going to be like toy sized because, you know, there's, um, there's like a, a, a hypnogram, right? I don't know if you've seen that one, but that's one of like the text to image generators and they're you, it's still not even photorealistic right getting a photorealistic text to image is still like that's a little ways off and then the next step after that is text to video so that's even further right so that's that's kind of where i think it's at i don't think we're going to hit an ai winter i know there's lots of people predicting that we're going to hit an ai winter but i think that we're actually still kind of in the acceleration point but again i don't know if it's going to follow an exponential curve forever or if it's a sigmoid curve so Time will tell. Yep. 
and still lots to do in the meantime, like you're describing, hey. even with GPT-3. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, my, my answer is I, I think all of this stuff is, is just converging to just greater human potential. Uh, in some sense, I'm not even necessarily interested in the AGI question, although I think it's important. I think just the ex the exciting possibilities we'll have, even now that we have, that we'll continue to have five to 10 years from now, um, so many more experiences, so many other things we'll be able to create that weren't possible. I think we'll have more people creating than ever before. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really, really exciting vision for humanity, even, right? Not just not just for you and I. So anyways, so with that said, uh, did you have anything you wanted to plug, David? Where, where can people find you online? Yeah. So um, my personal site is uh, davidkshapiro.com. Um, and I've got, um, I, I, have a, I have a few projects up and coming. Um, nothing out right now except for my book, Natural Language Cognitive Architecture. Um, you can download it for free from my website. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter. So one of my upcoming books is called Benevolent by Design, Six Words to Safeguard Humanity, which is to address the control problem of AGI. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that book should hopefully be out in the next six months or so. Um, and that is, um, so that's one project. I've got another nonfiction book. Um, and then also my own podcast that will be coming out soon. So, yeah, head over to my site, davidkshapiro.com, and sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get, you'll get updated when these, when these come out, when they're available. Awesome. And, David, you mentioned you're, you're looking for collaborators as well for yes. natural language cognitive architecture. So uh, if you're a coder, you know, I imagine product manager, researcher, uh, hit up David and just connect if, if any of this stuff interests you. Um, I've, I've, I asked, so I spent like a couple, I think I spent like a few days trying to find you on Twitter. So I don't <laughs> think you're quite on Twitter yet. Uh, I encourage you, uh, David, and of course, you, you know, you and I will connect after we'll, we'll put anywhere other, other place people could connect with you. Yep. There's the community forums. I, I assume you have a GitHub account. Yep. Um, so we're going to put that in, in the show notes and in the YouTube description below. Uh, so anyways, David, thank you so much for being here. I wanted to personally thank you for all the awesome, awesome community contributions you've made on the OpenAI community forum. Uh, you're just an, an essential person on there. I've learned a lot from you. Uh, you know, the insights you've shared, they're going to be there forever. And I'm sure I can't imagine how many people you've helped. Uh, and also about your book, I also just wanted to say to the audience, uh, David's done a great job making it really digestible. Like it was a very, it was a breeze of a read. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. As somebody who writes GPT-3 prompts and is into this ecosystem, it was just uh, very interesting to see uh, how it how it could be laid out uh, in this broader system approaching this huge problem. Um, and also, I was able to even get the book for free. Obviously, I encourage people to buy the book, support it, but it's it's there, it's ready. I think you know David's goal here is to get the ideas out. Um, and so, uh, anyways, so uh, that's it for today's episode. David, thank you so much again. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for all the kind comments. And um, and you're quite welcome. And so is everyone else. That's why I'm here. Awesome. And uh, quick, so my quick plugs, you know, at BAKZT Future, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube.com slash BAKZT Future. My newsletter, I'll put it in the description below. And I have a Twitter Spaces event coming in two days at noon. Uh, a couple people probably pulling up. This is like an audio-only event, so I encourage audio podcast listeners, YouTube subscribers, pull up to the uh, Twitter Spaces event. We're going to chat more about Codex and prompt design and some other stuff going on in the in in this space. So, anyways, thank you again for listening to Multimodal by Backseat Future. I'll catch you in the next one. Bye. <laughs>